Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome everyone, I'm your host Paul and this is Origins episode 64. This week the lead story is The Polaroid, the iPod of another generation. Some other stories we'll be looking at include A patient's bleeding heart is pictured for the first time And apparently ancient Persians gassed Romans And a huge Iron Age hall of coins has been found from the LiveScience.com website in their health section, cheese is grosser than thought. From the DamnInteresting.com comes an article about subterranean cities and an article that made the headline news quite a bit, NASA reveals life on Mars. A couple of stories from Australia, one being a two-headed fish larvae is blamed on chemicals in the Noosa River. Those and other stories in today's episode of Origins, number 64. I've always been a bit of a photo buff myself and I remembered that I had a few Polaroid cameras and was amazed at how they could print the picture instantly after taking the photograph. Anyway, I found this story on the Boston.com website and it's written by Elsa Dorfman. The Polaroid, the iPod of another generation. My love of Polaroid began in 1962 when I met photographer Nicholas Dean at the Grolier Bookstore in Harvard Square. He worked at Polaroid as a technical researcher and part of his job was to test new films. On his lunch hour and after work he would drop by the store, then as now a destination for poets, and take pictures of anyone who was hanging around. They were black and white photos, peel apart, with a stick of preservative to fix the image from the ravages of light. In 1964, I moved into an apartment building where a Polaroid original, 
Dr Cutler de Long West, who started to work in crystallography with Edwin Land before Polaroid was even called Polaroid, lived on the first floor. West rode his beat-up bike to Polaroid every day, ate all his meals in the company cafeteria and exuded the Polaroid legend of mad scientist. The Polaroid camera was my generation's iPod, our Blackberry, our GPS, our Kindle, that piece of technology that wows and then becomes an extension of the hand. And Dr Land, always called Doctor, although he didn't have his PhD, was our Steve Jobs. He was a brilliant scientist who got Ansel Adams, Mari Cossendus and Walker Evans to use his instant cameras with panache. In the late 1970s came a huge technological innovation, colour, instant film and a new camera model that was designed for it, the SX-70. The seventh wonder of the world, many called it. The film pack had a battery in it so that the camera could eject the image from the film pack and there was nothing to peel apart. The picture developed in its thin packet within 60 seconds. The camera folded up flat. The camera I still use, the refrigerator-sized Polaroid 20 by 24 inch land camera, was made to show off the charms and possibilities of the new colour film. Land wanted to see how big he could make an instant camera. Getting the chemicals to spread evenly so as to transfer the image from the negative to the positive and to develop in 80 seconds was a technological tour de force. My love affair with the 20 by 24 was instantaneous. The colour of the film I used, called P3, was soft and the images seemed three-dimensional. I loved the gravitas of the camera and its simplicity. Really, a grandly enlarged cereal box with a hole in the front to let in the light. And the Polaroid transfer mechanism in the back to catch the light. And there was something mystical about the fact I had to get on my knees to manually pull the packet of negative, chemical pod and positive out of the camera. And then the world shifted. Polaroid announced recently it would no longer manufacture instant film. No two photographers can get together without talking about Polaroid. What happened? It's hard to get past the disappointment and anger, the harsh reality that Polaroid film is gone. It is beyond belief that Polaroid sold for scrap the machines that made the film, that it let the inventory of chemicals dwindle. Some people say it goes back to Dr Land and his brilliant scientist-marketer-businessman dichotomy. Many say it was the lawsuit between Polaroid and Kodak which ate up time, money, attention. Hadn't Land heard of licensing his technology? Some say it was the Polaroid culture. Others say Polaroid could have survived if management and shareholders were content with a small profit rather than a huge pre-bubble profit. Many ask, with all the MBAs our country churns out, how come someone hadn't learned how to save Polaroid? Did digital, even though it doesn't give you an instant image to hold, make the end inevitable? In the end, each person has her or his own list of villains. At the top of my list is Polaroid's latest owner, Tom Petters of Minnesota, credited with selling the machines for scrap, dismantling the company, deciding all he wanted was Polaroid's brand name. I take cold and sad comfort that Petters, after ruining Polaroid, was indicted by the US Department of Justice and is now awaiting trial, accused of conducting a 12-year Ponzi scheme. The author of this article, Elsa Dorfman, is a portrait photographer in Cambridge and New York. And if you go to the Origins website at www.origins.info and go to the link for episode 64 in the show notes and then the link to this article, you can see Elsa standing next to her 20 by 24 huge Polaroid camera, which she loves so much.
Our second story today comes from the dailymail.co.uk website and it's an article by Mark Prigg. A patient's bleeding heart is pictured for the first time. Scientists have produced the first images of a heart attack taken from inside a human heart. The team from Imperial College say their breakthrough could radically improve treatment for victims of heart attacks. It allows doctors to see just how much internal bleeding is occurring in the patient and means more effective treatment can be given. For the new study, researchers captured images of bleeding inside the heart in 15 patients from Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust who had recently suffered a heart attack using magnetic resonance imaging machines. Computer analysis of the MRI scans reveal that the amount of bleeding can indicate how damaged a person's heart is after suffering an attack. Our study gives us a new insight into the damage that heart attacks can cause, says Dr Declan O'Regan, who led the study. This new scanning technique shows us that patients who develop bleeding inside their damaged heart muscle have a much poorer chance of recovery. We hope this will help us to identify which patients are most at risk of complications following their heart attack. Heart disease is Britain's biggest killer. Every six minutes, someone dies following a heart attack. Heart attacks happen when an artery feeding blood to the heart becomes blocked, depriving the heart muscle of oxygen. Currently, most people treated for a heart attack are fitted with a metal tube called a stent to keep the blocked artery clear. Recent research has shown that some people experience bleeding inside the heart muscle once blood starts to pump into it again. Dr Stuart Cook from the Medical Research Council's Clinical Services Centre at Imperial College London said, The more we understand about what happens during and after a heart attack, the greater the chances are of scientists finding new ways to combat the damage that heart attacks cause. I was browsing around on the news.bbc.co.uk website the other day looking for some stories for Origins and I found two from archaeology which I found quite interesting so I'd like to share them with you. Ancient Persians gassed Romans and this is a story by Tanya Syed. Ancient Persians were the first to use chemical warfare against their enemies, a study has suggested. A UK researcher said he found evidence that the Persian Empire used poisonous gases on the Roman city of Dura, eastern Syria, in the 3rd century AD. The theory is based on the discovery of remains of about 20 Roman soldiers found at the base of the city wall. The findings were presented at the Archaeological Institute of America's annual meeting. The study shows that the Persians dug a mine underneath the wall in order to enter the city. They also ignited bitumen and sulphur crystals to produce dense poisonous gases, suggested Simon James, an archaeologist at the University of Leicester. He added that the underground bellows or chimneys probably helped generate and distribute the deadly fumes. The Romans apparently responded with countermines in an effort to thwart the siege. For the Persians to kill 20 men in a space less than 2 metres high or wide and about 11 metres long required superhuman combat powers or something more insidious, said Dr James. The Roman assault party was unconscious in seconds, dead in minutes. Excavations showed that the soldiers' bodies were stacked near the countermine entrance by the attackers to create a protective barricade before setting the tunnel on fire. It is clear from the archaeological evidence at Dura that the Sasanian Persians were as knowledgeable in siege warfare as the Romans, said Dr James. They surely knew of this grim tactic. Evidence also shows that the Persians dug their mine with the intention of collapsing the city wall and adjacent tower. 
Although the mine failed to destroy the structures, the attackers eventually conquered the city. However, how they broke into the city still remains a mystery because details of the siege cannot be found in surviving historical records. Dura was later abandoned and its inhabitants were slaughtered or deported to Persia. In 1920, the well-preserved ruins were unearthed by Indian troops trying to dig defensive trenches along the buried city wall. The structures were excavated in a series of campaigns in the 1920s and 1930s by French and American researchers. In recent years, they have been extensively re-examined using modern technology. Dr James and a colleague are currently investigating records and objects collected about 80 years ago. And the second archaeological story from the BBC. A huge Iron Age hall of coins has been found. One of the UK's largest halls of Iron Age gold coins has been found in Suffolk. The 824 so-called staters were found using a metal detector in a broken pottery jar buried in a field near Wickham Market. Jude Pluvier of the Suffolk County Council Archaeological Service said the coins dated from about 40 BC to AD 15. They are thought to have been minted by predecessors of the Queen Boudicca. Miss Pluvier said their value, when in circulation, had been estimated at a modern equivalent of between half a million and one million pounds, but they were likely to be worth less than that now. It's a good, exciting find. It gives us a lot of new information about the late Iron Age, and particularly East Anglia in the late Iron Age. The discovery is important because it highlights the probable political, economic and religious importance of an area. It certainly suggests that there was a significant settlement nearby. As far as we understand, it was occupied by wealthy tribes or sub-tribes, she said. Miss Pluvier said the find was the largest collection of Iron Age gold coins found in Britain since 1849, when a farmer unearthed between 800 and 2,000 gold staters in a field near Milton Keynes. She said secret excavations had been carried out on the latest find in Suffolk after a man reported it to the Council's archaeological service in October. The staters, which each weigh about 5 grams, will now be valued ahead of a treasure trove inquest. We don't know how much they will be worth, but it will be less than they were at the time, said Miss Pluvier. After the treasure trove inquest, they will be offered to museums at their current value. She said the exact location of the find would not be made public, but added thorough searches of the area had not uncovered any further artefacts. Amelia Thomas, writing for the LiveScience.com website, has an article entitled Cheese is Grosser Than Thought. So all of you who like cheese as much as I do may read this article, or listen to this article I should say, with a little trepidation. Cheese makes some foodies jump up and down like little kids, but behind that heavenly taste and texture lies bacteria, mammal stomach lining, and pure fat. To ripen cheese and add flavour, bacterial strains are freely injected and smeared into the substance. But not all have been accounted for, a new study finds. Researchers at Newcastle University in England have now identified eight previously undiscovered microbes on the French brie-like cheese called Reblochon. The potential benefits of these new microbes are still unknown. The study is detailed in the December issue of the journal International Journal of Systematic and Evolutionary Microbiology. Flourishing microbes are consumed with every bite of cheese, though the cooling temperatures in refrigerators do slow down bacterial growth, 
they do not kill them in cheese or in any other food. Bacteria, either naturally swimming around the milk or manually injected, and enzymes derived from the inner stomach linings of any slaughtered milk-producing mammal, called rennet, are added to coagulate the milk into curds. Two proteins arise from the curdled milk and manufacturers capitalise on them. The first is whey, which is essentially leftover liquid from curdled milk and is increasingly being used as an ingredient in producing other foods. The second is casein, which makes up the bulk of the solid part of the cheese, along with fat. Fat is what gives cheese its taste, and 70-80% to 80% of the calories in cheese come from pure fat. Factories are adding more bacterial groups into cheese to achieve enhanced flavours. Cheese might be a hot commodity, but like other dairy products, it can have some unhealthy aspects. Other ways to get your calcium fix include eating the following foods. Fortified grains, kale, collard greens, mustard greens, cabbage, kelp, seaweed, watercress, chickpeas, broccoli, red beans, soya beans, tofu, seeds and raw nuts. With all that variety, there's hope for any cheese addict. Only it won't taste or smell the same. And just a short story to lighten up the podcast a little and let you get over your cheese fetish. This one's from the dailystar.co.uk website and it's one of those infamous tabloids that you find in the UK. And on this page there is a picture of this attractive young lady just about wearing a fireman's coat and not much else. I don't know what the story has to do with that but uh, anyway here it comes. A group of firefighters have been branded the world's worst after their own fire station burned to the ground. All six of the fire station's engines perished in the three million pound blaze in Skye, northern Germany, and it took 250 firemen from neighbouring towns to finally get the inferno under control. Investigators believe the firemen could have triggered the blaze themselves in a training exercise accident or that faulty wiring was to blame according to reports in the Austrian Times. The weekend blaze was the second time the brigade had lost all of its engines in a fire. The station was rebuilt in 1994 after being gutted by a fire. One local said, A fire service that can't keep its own fire station and engines safe doesn't exactly inspire confidence. As you are probably aware, the damninteresting.com is probably one of my favourite websites. And in the sections part of the menu, there is a link that says random article. And every now and then I go in and click on the random article link to see what I get. Anyway, for this podcast, I did just that. And it came up with an article written by Alan Bellows on November the 8th, 2005. And it's entitled Subterranean Cities. In certain parts of the world, the ground is honeycombed with secret man-made tunnels and rooms. Many of these remain secret from the general public, some of them supposedly containing what amounts to a self-contained city, including electricity production, 
water purification, food storage, restaurants and living quarters for thousands of people. Even some entire factories have been housed underground to protect them from bombings during wartime. A number of the subterranean bases are World War II and Cold War relics, long abandoned by the governments who tunnel them out. In 1967, Nick McCamley stumbled across such a complex in England. He was out bicycling with a friend in the wilderness when they unexpectedly came across a curious building in the middle of nowhere. It was standing in the middle of an open field, with no other structures evident for miles around. It had no windows and few doors, and it had strange black pipes leading from the sides of the building into the ground around it. It appeared to be abandoned and in disrepair. Nick returned with another friend the following weekend to investigate further, and discovered that the main door was rotted and weak, so they coaxed it open and went inside. Because there were no windows, the interior was in complete darkness, so they lit their way with small makeshift paper torches. Inside, they followed a conveyor belt through rubber-flapped door, which led to a steep slide that disappeared into the inky blackness below. Their feeble paper torches unable to illuminate the slide's other end. But they discovered too late that the slide was too steep and slippery to gain footing and gravity got the better of them. About a hundred foot down, they reached the bottom. Short on matches and paper and unaware of a way back out, the boys were a bit concerned. In the darkness, Nick groped along the wall to find his way when his hand made purchase on some old electrical switches. He turned a few of them on and the lights jumped to life revealing a corridor that stretched for about half a mile. They spent the rest of the day exploring miles and miles of abandoned rooms and corridors. Everything worked. The lights all responded to their switches, the tunnels were air-conditioned, and the conveyor belts could be turned on, which saved the two chaps a lot of walking. There were railways which led off into long tunnels, but there was no sign that anyone had been there in years. It seemed utterly deserted. It wasn't until later that Nick McCamley learned where he and his friend had spent their day of adventure, a place called Moncton Fairley. It was originally a limestone mine, but during World War II it had been converted into an ammunition storage facility. Its tunnels were carved into about 200 acres worth of area and it had its own electric plant. It was served by a network of railways including, reportedly, a 160-kilometre stretch which connected to the heart of London. A couple of years before Nick and his friend had found it, it had been completely abandoned by the British Ministry of Defence. Nick ended up writing about his experience and about other underground installations in his book Secret Underground Cities. Now, a few decades later, Many more such underground facilities are coming into the public knowledge as each one's existence is declassified. Just recently, the British government put one such city up for sale, one with 60 miles of roads, its own railway station, a TV studio, its own telephone exchange and a pub called the Rose and Crown. It was built in the late 1950s to house the Prime Minister and other government officials in the event of a nuclear attack from the Russians. And it still contains boxes of unopened 1950s-era chairs, ashtrays and tea sets. If you're considering making an offer, its theoretical value is around £5 million. For something similar, but a bit more affordable, one might consider making a home in one of the United States' retired Atlas missile silos. An unfinished silo, which comes with its own private airstrip, can be had for around $150,000. Another $150,000 or so, and you can make it a right comfortable home, which isn't a bad deal, considering these silos have the space of a mansion, about 15,000 square feet excellent natural insulation, significantly reducing heating and cooling bills, and can withstand a one megaton nuclear explosion a mile away. I want one. 
There is good reason to believe that there are thousands of secret underground facilities around the world, and some of them are quite probably actively used today. However, it is exceedingly difficult to research the topic, because most materials which discuss these facilities at any length immediately destroy their credibility by insisting that the tunnels are home to secret black government conspirators, the Illuminati, extraterrestrials, Elvis, or some combination of the above. But among the stories with at least a smidgen of credibility, there is evidence of US plans to build an underground airbase in World War II, a secret city beneath Tokyo, a Cold War bunker in Canada which has been converted into a museum, and a continuity of government facility at Mount Weather in the US. Many others are described at abovetopsecret.com, though I put little confidence in their credibility, given their UFO-related claims. No doubt there are hundreds of these underground installations, both abandoned and in full operation, but, being secret by definition, few can be reliably accounted for. I received this email the other day from Katie Flanagan. Hi Paul, love your podcast of Origins. I thought you might be interested in the story I found today from The Sun. You probably already know about it, but I thought I would share anyways, since it's right up your alley. And the story that Katie gave to us is the story about the supposed finding of life on Mars, or the possibility of life on Mars. As I was away in North Queensland at the time and on holidays, I didn't actually have time to search out an article suitable for the podcast, and thanks to Katie, it's been provided to me. And of course, it's much appreciated. Alien bugs are responsible for strong plumes of methane gas detected on Mars, it was claimed tonight. NASA scientists say the gas emissions could have either a geological or biological source, as the Sun exclusively revealed today. Life is responsible for more than 90% of the Earth's atmospheric methane. Experts believe there is a good chance that organisms produce the gas emissions as large as some of those seen on Earth, on Mars too. This raises the probability substantially that life was there or still survives at the present. We think the probability is much higher now based on this evidence. The bugs that made it may have vanished millions of years ago, leaving the methane frozen under the planet's surface. But another possibility is that some hardy organisms still survive on the red planet, living underground without sunlight or using hydrogen from water for energy. Similar microbes exist on Earth. Methane produced by the action of water on hot carbon-bearing rocks, as occurs in volcanic regions on Earth, is the alternative explanation. Whatever the source is, scientists agree that something is replenishing the methane. The find is seen as exciting new evidence that Martian microbes are still alive today. Some scientists reckon methane is also produced by volcanic processes, but there are no known active volcanoes on Mars. Furthermore, NASA has found the gas in the same regions as clouds of water vapour, the vital drink needed to support life. Experts speculate that the methane is being emitted as a waste product by organisms called methanogens, living in water beneath underground ice. And they would have to be alive today because the methane would otherwise have been lost from the Martian atmosphere. John Murray, a member of the Mars Express European Space Probe team, believes the mini Martians may be in a form of suspended animation and could even be revived. He has found overwhelming evidence of a vast frozen ocean beneath the dust near the Martian equator where simple life could have thrived as microbes. 
UK Mars expert Professor Colin Pillinger believes the methane can only point to the presence of life on the planet. His ill-fated Beagle 2 probe was carrying a laboratory that would have looked directly for such signs of life when it crashed on Christmas Day 2003. Professor Pillinger told The Sun last night, Methane is a product of biology. For methane to be in Mars's atmosphere, there has to be a replenishable source. The most obvious source of methane is organisms, so if you find methane in an atmosphere, you can suspect there is life. It's not proof, but it makes it worth a much closer look. NASA's findings confirm studies by Europe's Mars Express probe, which has been orbiting the planet for five years and also reported signs of methane in 2004. Britain's top space expert Nick Pope last night hailed the new evidence of life as the most important discovery of all time. He said, What could be more profound than to know it's not just us out there? We've really only scratched the surface. It's an absolute certainty that there is life out there and we are not alone. If there is life on Mars, then the logical conclusion is that there must be life elsewhere too. If it's happened here on Earth, then why shouldn't it happen everywhere? The implication is this is a universal law. Mars is very similar to Earth. It's about the same size. It's a rocky inner planet. Most scientists believe it probably had liquid water, which is almost universally agreed as the prerequisite for life. I am certain there is other life in the universe, and most likely, intelligent life. The Red Planet has gripped the public imagination for more than a century as a possible home for aliens. But life could not survive on its surface because unlike the Earth, Mars has no magnetic shield to protect it against deadly sun radiation. The planet resembles our own in many ways. It is made of rock, it has an atmosphere and weather systems. Although much smaller with a diameter of around 4,222 miles, Mars's day is just 40 minutes longer than ours and its tilted axis gives it seasons. Water has been found in the form of buried ice and scientists believe that two billion years ago Mars was covered with liquid oceans. Proof that water is still on Mars came in 2007 when Mars Express used ground-piercing radar to study the region around the planet's south pole. NASA's latest lander Phoenix dug up chunks of Martian ice last year. It swiftly evaporated in the thin atmosphere. NASA has controversially hit the headlines before for claiming evidence for Martians. In 1996, they said they had discovered fossilised organisms in a meteorite from the planet, but other scientists were sceptical. Well, thanks again, Katie, for sending the link to that article. It's really appreciated, and articles like that really make you think, is there life in other places? Is it going to be disclosed that they have found it? And how will the UFO community react when life is discovered somewhere else? To the lighter side, from the www.metro.co.uk website, a man takes 26 years to solve a Rubik's Cube. I can remember back when the Rubik's Cube first came out and what a sensational hit they were. I think every child in the school I was teaching at at the time had a Rubik's Cube and we did have a teacher on staff who turned out to be a bit of a genius with the cube and he could solve them in about 90 seconds. And of course he had a long line of children each day at lunchtime with a Rubik's Cube that needed to be straightened out again and I think he spent many, many hours solving their little problems for them. But anyway, here's the article. It has taken most of his life, but after 26 years, builder Graham Parker has finally solved the puzzle of the Rubik's Cube. 
When he first bought the toy in 1983, Yuri Andropov was the leader of the Soviet Union, breakfast TV was a novelty, and music CDs were in the shops for the first time. I cannot tell you what a relief it was to finally solve it, the 45-year-old from Portchester, Hampshire said. It has driven me mad over the years. It felt like it had taken over my life. I have missed important events to stay in and solve it, and I would lie awake at night thinking about it. I have had wrist and back problems for spending hours on it, but it was all worth it. When I clicked that last bit into place and each face was a solid colour, I wept. Wife Jean, 47, said it had felt like there had been three people in their marriage. When I met Graham, he was already obsessed with the cube, spending hours on it every day, she said. I have often thought about getting rid of it, but I knew he would not rest until he had solved it. A spokesman for the governing body for competitions involving the puzzle, the World Cube Association, said it was definitely the longest it had taken to finish the cube. And most of you are probably thinking the same as I'm thinking. This guy needs to get a life. Or maybe he could have looked on the internet to work out how to solve the puzzle. I'm sure there are plenty of clues out there. Now some stories from Australia, and these have been inspired by a couple of emails that I've received. The first one was from Marley Cohn, and he says, As an American, I enjoyed the interesting Australia facts. Please add them again to your podcast. And the second email came from Nick, and it says, Greetings, Paul. Still love the show. I came across this article while checking my email and thought you might find it interesting. And what it is, is a tourist job that was offered on one of our tourist websites, and apparently it created such a reaction that the website was down for days, and people even went to the extent of making videos to apply for the job. So for the Australian facts section, I'm going to do this article first. And it's from the news.yahoo.com website. Australia offers best job in the world on Paradise Island. Now this island is not far from where I live and it's on the Great Barrier Reef and it's quite a beautiful place and of course it's probably a great place to have a job. An Australian state, which is Queensland where I live, is offering internationally what it calls the best job in the world, earning a top salary for lazing around a beautiful tropical island for six months. The job pays $150,000 Australian dollars, which is about $105,000 US, and includes free airfares from the winner's home country to Hamilton Island on the Great Barrier Reef, Queensland state government announced on Tuesday. In return, the island caretaker will be expected to stroll the white sands, snorkel the reef and take care of a few minor tasks and report to a global audience via weekly blogs, photo diaries and video updates. The successful applicant who will stay rent-free in a three-bedroom beach home complete with plunge pool and golf buggy must be a good swimmer, excellent communicator and be able to speak and write English. They also have to talk to the media from time to time about what they're doing so they can't be too shy and they'll have to love the sea, the sun, the outdoors, said the acting state premier Paul Lucas. The fact that they will be paid to explore the islands of the Great Barrier Reef, swim, snorkel and generally live the Queensland lifestyle makes this undoubtedly the best job in the world. Lucas said the campaign was part of a drive to protect the state's 18 billion Australian dollar a year tourist industry during the tough economic climate caused by the global meltdown. Traditional tourism advertising just doesn't cut it sometimes, and we are thinking outside the box by launching this campaign. Queensland Tourism Minister Desley Boyle said some people might question whether it was risky to let an unknown person become an unofficial tourism spokesman for the state. 
I think the biggest risk will be that the successful candidate won't want to go home at the end of the six months, she said. This is a legitimate job which is open to anyone and everyone. Applications are open until February 22. Eleven shortlisted candidates will be flown to Hamilton Island in early May for the final selection process and the six-month contract will commence on July 1. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 64, you can find the link to the application form. But be quick, there's probably only about 25 million people ahead of you. And our second Australian story comes from the www.news.com.au website and this is in a place not far from where I live. Two-headed fish larvae blamed on farm chemicals in the Noosa River and it's by Brian Williams and Sophie Ellsworth. Chemical contamination from farm runoff has been blamed after millions of fish larvae in the Noosa River were found to have grown two heads. The disfigured larvae are thought to have been affected by one of two popular farm chemicals, either the insecticide endosulfan or the fungicide carbendism, the Courier Mail reports. Former New South Wales fisheries scientist and aquaculture veterinarian Mark Landos yesterday called on the federal government to ban the chemicals and urgently find replacements. Dr Landos said about 90% of larvae spawned at the Sunland fish hatchery from bass taken from the river were deformed and all died within 48 hours. It certainly looks like the fish have been exposed to something in the river, Dr Landos said. I wouldn't like to be having kids and living next to a place that uses these chemicals and I wouldn't like to be drinking tank water where they are in use. Hatchery owner Gwen Gilson blames chemicals used by macadamia farmers near her Boreen Point business for the deformities. Some embryos split into two heads and some had two equal heads and a small tail and some had one big long head and a small tail coming out of the head, she said. Farmers nearby declined to comment. Dr Landos said the chemicals were potentially human carcinogens and could have entered the river through any number of sources, such as spraying or runoff, even though there was no evidence of improper use. Carbendism had a history of causing embryonic defects and has been banned in the US, while endosulfan was banned in New Zealand. These chemicals mess up cell development, he said, and there's no plausible explanation for what's going on. Biosecurity Queensland Chief Ron Glanville said an investigation into the claims started two years ago. No evidence of chemicals used on an adjoining property were found in water, fish, fish eggs, chooks and horse samples. If you're wondering what a chook is, that's the local name for a chicken. These things are notoriously hard to track down, he said. Dr Landos and Dr Glanville said there was no danger for people either swimming or eating fish from the Noosa River because if chemicals were in the water, levels would be likely to be exceedingly low. The Federal Environment Department has been asked to investigate. Well, you quite often hear about these chemical contaminations in other parts of the world and it sort of makes you think twice when it's so close to home. As you're probably aware, I really like to get feedback about my podcasts. It really inspires me to keep going and make things better as I go along. And this week I've had quite a bit of feedback. I've already mentioned a couple of them. And if you don't mind, here are a few more. The first is from Jason, who lives in Chicago. Paul, I thoroughly enjoy every podcast of Origins. The stories you choose are always stimulating 
and the relaxing music puts me in a sedative trance, ideal for listening. I am a podcast junkie, and Origins is my favourite. And the second comes from Lynn, who's in Canada. Hi, Paul. I was at times grossed out, entertained, informed, and inspired by your last episode, entitled, When Childbirth Was Natural and Deadly. It was really interesting hearing about what doctors once thought meant by clean hands, and the story behind veils was a real eye-opener. Thanks for the great podcast. And if you do like podcasts, you might be interested in some of the podcasts that Lynn does. She has a new one entitled, The Eyeball Podcast. To eyeball, to look at, check or observe closely, The Eyeball Podcast is a closer look at the interesting stories behind everyday objects, food, holidays, toys and more. Who knew the mundane could be so interesting? For people who enjoy trivia, learning and are curious about the world. Take just a few minutes to learn the stories behind. And that podcast can be found on the TalkShoe Network, which is www.talkshoe.com. I've also had another email from Philip, and he's recommended a book called Out of Time and Place by Terry O'Neill, and that might be a great source of articles for this podcast. So thanks, Philip, for that reference. I had another from Mario. Hi, my name is Mario and I'm from the US and I just discovered your show's Origins and Mysteries Abound and I really enjoy them both. I have downloaded every episode and listen to them every day at work. Thank you for making my days more enjoyable. Please keep up the good work. I will make sure I rate all of your shows with the highest rating possible. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Mario. It's really appreciated. And for those of you who are worried about the Mysteries Abound podcast, it is coming back. This last six weeks has been a little bit difficult because it's actually school holidays in Australia. And I've had my wife, who was a teacher, and my two teenage boys and all their associated hangers-on in the house. And it's been really difficult to find time to record without one zillion interruptions. So, Over the last six weeks, I've kept the Origins podcast reasonably up to date because it is my most popular one, and mysteries abound. Be assured, it is coming back. I've got one half recorded, and next week, everyone goes back to school. Hallelujah. I'll have time to record. So don't worry, it is coming back. And from the US iTunes store, I found this review by Phil Tex. This podcast covers it all with great background music. I don't even miss Mysterious Universe anymore. I almost look forward to being stuck in traffic so I can get through the whole podcast before work. Keep up the great work, Paul. And that's from Philip in Sweden. Well, thanks, Philip, for the great review. And if I can help you feel better while you're stuck in traffic, I'm sure I can keep the podcast going just for you. And at this point in the podcast, it's time for an article from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things. Over the last few weeks and months, we've been doing weddings. Well, let's move away from weddings and get to something more personal. Birthdays, 3000 BC, Egypt. It is customary today to celebrate a living person's birthday. But if one Western tradition had prevailed we'd be observing annual post-mortem celebrations of the death day, once a more significant event. Many of our birthday customs have switched 180 degrees from what they were in the past. Children's birthdays were never observed, nor were those of women. And the decorated birthday cake, briefly a Greek tradition, went unbaked for centuries though it reappeared to be topped with candles and greeted with a rousing chorus of happy birthday to you. How did we come by our many birthday customs? In Egypt and later in Babylonia, dates of birth were recorded and celebrated for male children of royalty. Birthday fates were unheard of for the lower classes and for women of almost any rank other than queen. Only a king, queen or high-ranking nobleman even recognised the day he or she was born, let alone commemorated it annually. 
the first birthday celebrations in recorded history around 3000 BC were those of the early pharaohs, kings of Egypt. The practice began after Menes united the upper and lower kingdoms. Celebrations were elaborate household feasts in which servants, slaves and freedmen took part. Often prisoners were released from the royal jails. Two ancient female birthdays are documented. From Plutarch, the first century Greek biographer and essayist, we know that Cleopatra IV, the last member of the Ptolemaic dynasty to rule Egypt, threw an immense birthday celebration for her lover, Mark Antony, at which the invited guests were themselves lavished with royal gifts. An earlier Egyptian queen, Cleopatra II, who incestuously married her brother Ptolemy and had a son by him, received from her husband one of the most macabre birthday presents in history, the slaughtered and dismembered body of their son. The Greeks adopted the Egyptian idea of birthday celebrations, and from the Persians, renowned among ancient confectioners, they added the custom of a sweet birthday cake as a hallmark of the occasion. The writer Philochorus tells us that worshippers of Artemis, goddess of the moon and the hunt, celebrated her birthday on the 6th of every month by baking a large cake of flour and honey. There is evidence suggesting that Artemis's cake might actually have been topped with lighted candles, since candles signified moonlight, the goddess's earthward radiance. Birthdays of Greek deities were celebrated monthly, each god hailed with twelve fates a year. At the other extreme, birthdays of mortal women and children were considered too unimportant to observe. But when the birthday of the man of the house arrived, no banquet was deemed too lavish. The Greeks called these festivities for living males genethlia, and the annual celebrations continued for years after a man's death, with the post-mortem observances known as genesia. The Romans added a new twist to birthday celebrations. Before the dawn of the Christian era, the Roman Senate inaugurated the custom still practiced today, of making the birthdays of important statesmen national holidays. In 44 BC, the Senate passed a resolution making the assassinated Caesar's birthday an annual observance, highlighted by a public parade, a circus performance, gladiatorial combats, an evening banquet and a theatrical presentation of a dramatic play. With the rise of Christianity, the tradition of celebrating birthdays ceased altogether. To the early followers of Christ, who were oppressed, persecuted and martyred by the Jews and pagans, and who believed that infants entered this world with the original sin of Adam condemning their souls, the world was a harsh, cruel place. There was no reason to celebrate one's birth. But since death was the true deliverance, the passage to eternal paradise, Every person's death day merited prayerful observance. Contrary to popular belief, it was the death days and not the birthdays of saints that were celebrated and became their feast days. Church historians interpret many early Christian references to birthdays as passage or birth into the afterlife. A birthday of a saint clarified the early church apologist Peter Chrysologus, is not that in which they are born in the flesh, but that in which they are born from earth into heaven, from labour to rest. There was a further reason why early church fathers preached against celebrating birthdays. They considered the festivities, borrowed from the Egyptians and the Greeks, as relics of pagan practices. In AD 245, when a group of early Christian historians attempted to pinpoint the exact date of Christ's birth, the Catholic Church ruled the undertaking sacrilegious, proclaiming that it would be sinful to observe the birthday of Christ as though he were a king pharaoh. In the 4th century, though, the Church began to alter its attitude towards birthday celebrations and it commenced serious discussions to settle the date of Christ's birth. It was with the celebration of Christ's nativity that the Western world returned to the celebration of birthdays. By the 12th century, parish churches throughout Europe were recording the birth dates of women and children, and families were observing the dates with annual celebrations. 
Around this time, the birthday cake re-emerged, now topped with candles. And our final story for today's podcast comes from the NewScientist.com website and it's written by Catherine Brahik. An unusual fossil may rule out ancient flood. It is said that in the mists of time the islands of New Zealand were lost, Atlantis-like beneath the ocean. But a newly discovered fossil reptile suggests this theory does not hold water. Mark Jones of University College London in the UK and colleagues found portions of fossilised reptile jaw on New Zealand's South Island. The wear patterns of the teeth suggest its owner had two parallel rows of upper teeth and a single row of lower teeth that slotted in between. The only reptile known to have this type of jaw is the endangered Tuatara and its ancestors. With its spiny crest and unique jaw, the lizard-like Tuatara is remarkable even among New Zealand's extraordinary wildlife. But what is most exciting about Jones's fossil is its age. It dates to just three million years after a time when some researchers have suggested that the land mass that forms New Zealand sank beneath the waves. After Zealandia, New Zealand's precursor broke off from Antarctica, it drifted northwards and shrank due to a combination of tectonic movements and rising sea levels. Marine sediments that now lie above sea level provide evidence of this, but just how small the land area got is open to debate. Some have said it could have got to 15% of its current size. More recently, a group of researchers in New Zealand suggested that the absence of fossils between 25 and 22 million years ago means the islands completely disappeared and then later re-emerged. If this were the case, the ancestral Tuatara, discovered by Jones and colleagues and all of New Zealand's biodiversity, could only have arrived after the land drowned. To do this, the ancient reptile would have had to cross vast oceans in a few million years. The team says that this is an unlikely feat for an animal that is a poor swimmer and would have rapidly dehydrated in salt water. And it's just not the Tuatara fossil that suggests New Zealand did not fully drown. There is a lot of diversity in this fossil deposit, says Jones. There are about 24 species of birds a lot of plants, insects and freshwater fish. Four million years is a long time, but that still leaves a lot of explaining. It would be especially difficult to explain, as there is no evidence that these species lived in neighbouring Australia at the time, and many of them would have had a hard time surviving lengthy sea journeys. Instead, Jones believes Zealandia sank but did not disappear, allowing a certain number of species to survive and then repopulate as the continental crust re-emerged. Even if it was reduced to 1% of current day land area, there would still be quite a lot of land there, says Jones. It's quite possible there could have been an archipelago of islands, and these can support a huge amount of life. 1% of New Zealand equates to over 2,500 square kilometres, more than 1,000 times the surface area of Stevens Island, where more than 30,000 Tuatara currently live. Oh, and of course I couldn't finish the podcast without a story from the worldwide weird. Just one this time. It's from the Times of India. In a bizarre ritual... Two minor girls, both seven, from the remote Palipurupet village in Tamil Nadu's Vulupuram district, were married off to frogs on Friday night. The ceremony, an annual feature during the Pongal Harvest Festival, is conducted to prevent the outbreak of mysterious diseases in the village. The girls, dressed up in traditional bridal finery, 
gilded saris and gold jewellery, married the frog princes in separate, elaborate ceremonies at two different temples in the presence of hundreds of villagers. Amidst chanting of Vedic hymns, the temple priests garland the brides and tie the Magal Sutras on behalf of the frogs, pronouncing the two as wives of the amphibians before the sacred fire at the auspicious hour. The villagers threw themselves into the ceremonies with gusto. While residents living in the western part of the village acted as relatives of the brides, and those from the eastern part play-acted as relatives of the grooms, the ceremonies had all the usual elements of a traditional marriage, including a sumptuous feast. However, unlike the fairy tale Frog Prince, where the ugly toad turns into a handsome prince when the princess kisses it, the Vuluparam village bells bid their amphibian grooms goodbye and lead a normal life thereafter. As for the terrified frogs, they are thrown back into the temple ponds after the ceremony. Earlier, the relatives of the brides came in a procession to the grooms' houses in the eastern part of the village to fix the marriage and later went to the temple pond to catch the frogs. The frog princes were tied to long sticks decorated with garlands for the marriage ceremonies. An elderly woman of the village said the ritual was practised traditionally for several generations to ward off evil spirits and diseases from the village. The Vulupuram district collector told the Times of India that he had sent a team led by the district's social welfare officer to visit the village and submit a detailed report. The district administration proposes to evolve comprehensive schemes to motivate and enlighten the villagers against such evil and ignorant practices, he said. But all these years, the strange practice has been going on unchecked. Well, that story concludes episode 64 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you're sitting in traffic, I hope you feel better when you finally get to your destination. Don't forget, if you'd like to provide feedback for the show, it is greatly appreciated and is best done through Podcast Alley or through iTunes. And iTunes is probably the best if you do subscribe to iTunes, as it's where I get most of my download from. If you do wish to email me, I have changed my email address. The old Paul Rex one is getting a bit overloaded, so I've made a new one. It's Origins at origins.info and don't forget origins is spelt o-r-i-g-i-n-z so it's origins at origins.info bye for now Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.